0: I think you should definitely get a measles vaccine. Now, the good news is we eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000. It's come back because a critical percentage of parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And, you know, people think measles is no big deal. It's a big deal. Before there was a vaccine, there would be 50,000 hospitalizations a year. There'd be 500 deaths a year. Measles makes you sick, and we have a vaccine
1: to prevent it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Finding Your Wellness, a podcast brought to you by the Columbia Association. I am Dr. Harry Okun, a community physician for over 35 years and the Columbia Association's medical director. I am proud to be working with the Columbia Association for over a decade and assist in their mission to improve the health and wellness of our community. You may notice my hoarse voice today. I'm getting over a non-COVID-19 viral infection contracted from my grandson. Respiratory season is here and it seems right now there has been an explosion of non-COVID-19 infections in the school system. I guess to be expected since everybody's coming together. And we are so fortunate to be able to talk to an internationally famous expert in preventing viral illnesses with vaccinations. It's my pleasure to introduce our guest today, Dr. Paul Offit, who is also a fellow alumnus from my medical school from 1977, is the director of the Vaccine Education Center and a professor of pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Disease at Children's Hospital Philadelphia. He is the Maurice R. Hillman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is an internationally recognized expert in the fields of virology and immunology. And I've seen him numerous times in the last two years on TV talking to us and telling us how to prepare and how to take care of ourselves during our coronavirus epidemic. We'll be talking about a number of topics and end up with some information about coronavirus. So welcome, Dr. Offit, and thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. So first, I'd like to talk a little bit about the upcoming flu season. And in the last two years, where we monitor for flu in the Southern Hemisphere, there's been very little flu. But this year, I think we're expecting something different, correct?
0: Right. That's exactly right. Usually what happens in Australia or South America kind of predicts what's about to happen in the United States. And Australia had a Pretty dreadful influenza season, but you're right. I'm on the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee, and you know every year in March we sit down and we pick strains for that vaccine, which comes out then in September. It's a six-month production cycle. If you look at at that flu, say 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, like in 2020, 2021, it was gone because you know when you mask and social distance and restrict travel and close schools and close businesses, you can eliminate respiratory viruses. Obviously, it's a huge price to pay and not possible, but It was amazing that in those couple of years trying to pick flu strains when there was really so little circulating flu, but it's circulating now. And I think there's every reason to believe it could be a tough
1: season. Now, are the different types of flu, A and B, I think it's the A predominant right now, correct?
0: Right. So the H3N2 and then H1N1 are the A strains. And then the B strain is B Victoria. The other B strain that's in the vaccine is something called B Amigata, which interestingly we haven't seen since 2018. We may eventually replace that in the vaccine with a different, a two H3N2 strains. That may happen.
1: So the vaccine that I'm recommending for my patients under 65 is a quadrivalent vaccine available anywhere. And then for the patients over 65, we're recommending the high dose flu vaccination and any problem in your mind by taking the flu vaccination with other vaccinations.
0: No. You know, when vaccines are introduced onto the schedule, you often have to do concomitant use studies to prove that that vaccine doesn't interfere with the safety profile or immunogenicity profile of existing vaccines. So, and this is also true now for flu and COVID. So, in other words, you can get a flu vaccine and a COVID vaccine at the same time, but certainly really important to get your flu vaccine. And and I mean, I'm over 65 and I got the high dose vaccine about two days ago, and and I'm still alive talking to you on this podcast. So, there you go.
1: So, I I tell people, my uh, patients, Timing is important with this. You don't want to get it too early, although I know the CDC has been pushing as soon as it's available, because there is a waning of that vaccine, correct?
0: That's right. you sort of neutralizing antibodies peak, you know, and then start to come down. So there are some people actually who will get two flu vaccines in the season, including vaccine experts who will sort of get it early on, say, September, October, then January, February, get a second dose. So that's not the recommendation. But in any case, flu is starting to circulate. So I think now would be the
1: time. Great. Right. Great. So next, I want to talk a little bit about monkeypox. So, you know, for a while, it was the number one health topic that even seemed to go beyond when we were talking about coronavirus. And monkeypox, I think the government has done an adequate job being prepared for testing, being prepared with an antiviral, being prepared now also with a vaccine, which is key to smallpox, but can give you monkeypox protection. Could you make some comments on where you think we are now on monkeypox? Right. So although it's
0: called monkeypox, it probably would be more accurate to call it rodent pox. I mean, that is really the source of this. But the, the, the sort of the good news about pox viruses is that they're antigenically somewhat similar. So, for example, we are immunized. right? If you were born before 1972, you were immunized with basically a smallpox vaccine that was made from basically cowpox that protects you against human smallpox. The same thing's true here. The Genios vaccine or the ACAM2000 vaccine or essentially the original smallpox vaccine to protect you against this related pox virus, monkeypox. And it does work. It's probably at least, you know, even if you got the smallpox vaccine 50 years ago, you're probably, pretty well protected against severe disease from monkeypox. But it does look like the good news is monkeypox seems to be on the wane as we've gotten much better about, frankly, largely changing our activities to put us at lesser risk of that virus.
1: Right. As I've stressed earlier to my patients, this is really a one risk group area for most people. I mean, there was a concern that maybe you could see it in daycare centers and nursery schools, but really it's one risk group, men who have sex with men correct?
0: Yeah, or people who come in contact with them. So there have been and, pediatric cases. I mean, there have been dozens of pediatric cases because it is spread by skin contact, you know, contact, right, skin to skin contact, or by coming in contact with, you know, blankets, towels, et cetera, where that virus then exists on that particular fomite. But it is on the wane. And fortunately, I think people are changing their activity enough so that that's why you're seeing that.
1: It certainly got a lot of attention though, didn't it? It did. It certainly more, of- more so than I think most people would have figured.
0: I think the word monkeypox is just kind of a scary word. Yeah. I think
1: probably yeah. And the pictures are pretty scary, too. Right. So one thing I did want to ask you about the monkeypox vaccine, and I wondered if this has been your experience. It was reported that one out of 175 could have cardiac side effects from that. Is that correct?
0: Yeah, so the smallpox vaccine, and 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 whether it's the ACAM 2000, which is frankly the original smallpox vaccine, or this Genios vaccine, which is is a replication defective virus, so that virus cannot reproduce itself. The protection is probably not as good as with the ACAM 2000 vaccine, but it's a much much safer vaccine. I mean, can it cause sort of short lived transient myocarditis or pericarditis? Yes, but it does, as, as can the mRNA vaccines for COVID, as does COVID. So that, that does happen. But again, it doesn't appear to, at least at the moment, appear to cause sort of any long-term problems.
1: Right. So safe vaccine, adequately stockpiled. I think in this instance, I think the government did a great job in getting everybody ready for this. So good. All right. Next, I want to talk a little bit about polio, because polio seems to have re-emerged in a minor amount. And I think there's issues about, have people been adequately immunized? Are boosters needed? What's this all about? This
0: story worries me much more than than monkeypox. I mean, so there was a case, a 27-year-old man in Rockland County, New York, who was paralyzed by polio virus. Now, the virus he was paralyzed by was not the virus we were used to before there was a polio vaccine. I mean, the so-called wild-type virus, the natural virus. This is a vaccine-derived strain a vaccine derived strain from the type two component of the Sabin vaccine. So that particular strain can cause paralysis and does circulate in this world. And this man from Rockland County who never left the United States, I mean, he acquired that virus in this country, is worrisome in the sense that only about one of every 2,000 people who are infected with that virus will be paralyzed by it. So you can assume he's the tip of a much bigger iceberg. I think there are probably thousands of people in this country who are infected with that virus. See, the good news about the inactivated polio vaccine, which we've been using in this country now since the year 2000, is it prevents polio. If you've gotten that, that vaccine, you will not be paralyzed by this virus, but you could still be infected by it because the inactivated vaccine doesn't induce intestinal immunity. So I think what we need to do is we need to do wastewater samples, not just in New York or in in Rockland County or in Orange County, New York, but in every major city in this country. I think we need to find out just how commonly this virus is circulating as a way to make a point that people need to get their vaccine. The reason that man got paralyzed is he was never vaccinated and he was living in a community in in his particular area code in Rockland County that had a 30% immunization rate. That's when you see this arise. So although people think polio is a thing of the past, and and you'd certainly like it to be, if we let our guard down, this virus will come back.
1: Got it. Now, do you think that people should routinely midlife get an inactivated polio vaccine?
0: No, I think if you were vaccinated as a child, I mean, I was vaccinated as a child because I was a child of the 50s. But if you were vaccinated, I think you are protected against paralysis, frankly, for the rest of your life. Right. But but again, so we use the inactivated vaccine from 1955 to 1963. Then we use the oral vaccine, the Albert Sabin vaccine, which was given as drops in the mouth right up from 1963 to the year 2000. So for the last 20 plus years, we've only used the inactivated vaccine. So if you're less than 22 years of age, that's the vaccine that you got, which means you can still be infected by this virus, but not paralyzed by it. For those people who got the vaccine in 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you probably are less likely to shed that virus, to be infected with that virus. But I think if you were vaccinated, you're good. If you weren't vaccinated, then you should get
1: vaccinated. Now, concerning polio-like illness, there is another scary enterovirus out there that can cause this flaccid paralysis in children. But the frequency of that is very low right now, correct?
0: Right. Polio is an enterovirus, so this is yet another enterovirus. Yet another enterovirus, right.
1: right, right, okay, but the frequency of that is extremely low and unlikely, but there was a series of cases reported about six months or eight months ago, just a little focuses of kids who had flaccid paralysis, probably not from polio, probably. From exactly
0: right, this is one of the enterovirus strains, antivirus, like 68 yeah. but I think When polio was king, meaning before we had a vaccine in 1955, uh, you would see 30,000 cases, 40,000 cases of paralysis every year and 1,500 deaths. This is not that. Right. But um, if it becomes so common or more common, you know, then we would need a vaccine to prevent this particular virus as well. But it's not
1: there yet. Yeah, I still remember being in grade school, getting my polio vaccine, where they would take this orange-looking liquid and drop it on sugar cubes. I know. Wasn't that delicious? It was pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, I, I still remember that. Well, I want to talk now briefly about measles. So, you know, there have been, as you said, unvaccinated communities. We know of some in in New York, in, um, I think, Brooklyn, where measles outbreaks happen. And one of the interesting things about measles is it has a R value or contagiosis value that's quite high, like about for every one person with measles, you can transmit it to, I think, 12, sort of similar to what we're going to talk next about was Omicron. So how do you feel about measles? Should people Periodically in midlife, get their measles titers checked. How do you feel about that?
0: I think if you if you were naturally infected with measles, I mean, if you were born before 1967, really, the vaccine came into use in 1963. But if you were born before 1967, you likely had measles. I mean, I certainly had measles as yeah. a but if you've been vaccinated with a measles vaccine, I think you are protected for the rest, the rest of your life. You don't, you don't need to get a measles vaccine. If you, if you haven't gotten measles vaccine at any point of your life and you, were, and you were born, say, after 1967, I think you should definitely get a measles vaccine. Now, the good news is we eliminated measles from this country by the year 2000. It's come back because a critical percentage of parents have chosen not to vaccinate their children. And, you know, people think measles is no big deal. It's a big deal. Before there was a vaccine, there would be 50,000 hospitalizations a year. There'd be 500 deaths years, measles makes you sick and we have a vaccine to prevent it. And so if you haven't gotten it, you should get it. And you're right. If you look back at where those outbreaks occurred in many ways, it's in those same areas in Rockland County where we're seeing this sort of polio arise, because when you have groups, and in this particular case in Rockland County, it was sort of a a group of uh, Orthodox Jewish folks who I think just had a a large amount of distrust for government officials, for government recommendations or mandates, and just didn't want to get those vaccines. They were also targeted by anti-vaccine groups um, that which specifically had a magazine called Peach, P-E-A-C-H, which was targeted, it was, there were Hebrew phrases in it, targeted into those groups to sort of make them even more fearful of vaccines. It's awful, it really is awful. It's us at our worst when we scare people unnecessarily.
1: Yeah. And I I think that measles actually came in from probably Israel, where there's another group of people that don't believe in vaccinations and came into Brooklyn in that way. Now, regarding that vaccination. So you can't get a plain measles vaccination. You have to get an MMR, right? Measles, mumps, rubella.
0: That's right. It's not not offered as a separate vaccine.
1: Right. And that's an attenuated live vaccination. So no concerns about that.
0: No, no, it, it's, a, it's an excellent, excellent vaccine. I mean, because yeah. it's an attenuated live vaccine, it really induces excellent long-term immunity. Also, measles, because it's a long incubation period disease, meaning from the time when you're exposed to the time that you get sick, you can eliminate diseases like measles. I mean, disease like smallpox is a long incubation period disease. That's why we could eliminate it. Same thing you can argue for polio, mumps, Germany. We eliminated German measles in this country in 2005 because it's a long incubation period disease. So um, you can eliminate measles. We did eliminate measles, but then... People, parents, a critical percentage of parents stopped giving the vaccine, and so it came back. And as you said, it's the most contagious of the vaccine-preventable diseases. Some people all estimate the R-naught, the contagiousness index, meaning how many people would you infect during the day, assuming you're sick and everybody you come in contact with is susceptible, can be as high as 18. And that's a really, really high contagiousness index. It's it's so hard to, to prevent that disease. And we did it because it's a great vaccine, but it doesn't work if you don't use it.
1: Great. So- Next, I want to talk about coronavirus and big news today, I think, the protein subunit vaccine has been approved. And I think as a booster, as a booster that you can take regardless of whatever you got before. So I think that's kind of big news because there's a lot of people that have been holding off on getting recurrent mRNA vaccines.
0: That is good news. I mean, that that is was the obvious niche for that vaccine, that adjuvanted protein subunit vaccine. So we'll see. I, th- I think what we need to define though is, Who benefits from booster dosing? The the CDC on September 1st said that everyone over 12 years of age should receive a booster dose. Now this is another vaccine that can be used for that. I think that if you look at CDC's data, or you look at the data that's come out of the UK recently, who benefits from a third dose? Who benefits from a fourth dose? It's not everybody. It it really is people who are either immune compromised, have sort of high-risk medical conditions, or are elderly, and by which I mean people over 75. So I really think we should focus on those groups. I, I don't see healthy young people necessarily benefiting from booster.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I've been following what you've been saying for a long time. And you've had that idea for months, right? I
0: have. And it is
1: what it is, the Europeans are way ahead of
0: us on this. The Europeans actually believe their data and are focusing on those groups. Because remember, the goal is to prevent severe disease. The goal is like. to keep people out of the hospital and out of the ICU and keep them from dying. If you want to try and prevent mild disease, good luck. I mean, this is a short incubation period virus. I mean, even if the whole world were vaccinated, even if this virus never created variants, you would still see mild disease. You would still see this virus circulating. So to try and set that as a goal by asking people to boost and boost and boost frequently is, uh, I just think, is unrealistic.
1: But it does look like what we're talking about is the protein subunit vaccine made by a company called Novavax. And so this is a, a different vaccine made with traditional vaccine technology. It does seem from what I've read that the durability of this vaccine seems to be better in terms of lasting longer for protection.
0: Well, again, the protection you care about is protection against severe disease. It's certainly true that neutralizing antibodies will be sort of higher titered and possibly longer lived, but neutralizing antibodies will always fade over time. What you really care about are T cells, uh, specifically T helper cells, cytotoxic T cells, because those are the cells that probably most correlate with protection against severe disease. So I, I really wish that both the companies and academic immunologists would provide us more information about the longevity and frequency of these memory T cells, because I think that's really what you care about. And I really do think the future of vaccines with COVID will not just be about SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. I mean, if you look at, for example, studies now in preclinical studies and experimental animals, the nuclear protein is also sort of a critical protein for inducing these T cells, these broad T cell responses. Mm -hmm. So I think we should start focusing on that and we will.
1: And it's interesting you mentioned that, because if I'm interested in whether proving by antibody status, if somebody has had and successfully cleared coronavirus, I might check a nuclear capsid antibody. And that antibody is durable as durable as,
0: as any antibody. I mean, it's, it's, but the good news is nuclear protein is expressed well on the surface of infected cells. If you're infected with the virus, you make a lot of, you make a response to nuclear protein, including a, side of, a T cell response. Right. What's interesting to me about this virus, the good news about this virus, if there's any good news to be had from this virus, it's that although it mutates to the point that it can sort of become so immune evasive, it resists the uh, neutralizing effects of antibodies. It really hasn't resisted the effects of T cells because those regions are conserved. And so for example, I mean, I had three doses of this vaccine, which is designed to pre- prevent the Wuhan one strain, the original strain, the original recipe strain, right? And then in May, I had a, a two-day infection, probably with BA two, probably with one of the Omicron subvariants, but had a mild infection because I'm still protected against severe disease. And that's what people need to realize: that to date, no virus has has come about that is resistant to protection against
1: severe disease. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So since you got it in May you now have some degree of hybrid immunity, right? Right. How long do you think that will last to continue to give you immunity?
0: And that's the critical question. And I think moving forward, there needs to be a collaboration between CDC epidemiologists and academic immunologists to answer the question, how long does protection against severe disease last? And when that question, because it's going to be different for different groups. And then find out What the answer to that question is, and then target your boosters based on the answers to that question. Just sort of boosting everybody all the time is not, I think, a viable public health strategy, nor is it one that the public is accepting. I think that most people are pretty much ignoring booster dosing, it seems, especially with this most recent bivalent vaccine.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's another piece that is now coming into it, which is an important thing to talk about. And that is, there's an emerging, as you said, more in Europe than here. Concern that the mRNA vaccines may bring us side effects and signals that we didn't see before, or we couldn't see. For instance, in the UK, there's a vocal cardiologist who's concerned about the cardiovascular problems that we're seeing. We know that the mRNA vaccines have an incidence of causing myocarditis and pericarditis, typically in younger people, about 17 out of 100,000, which has not been found with the protein subunit vaccine. So do you think that as time marches on, there'll be more associative issues that will put the mRNA vaccine perhaps less utilized and the newer vaccine more utilized. Well, first of all,
0: uh, I wouldn't say the Novavax vaccine, the protein subunit vaccine, is free of myocarditis as a side effect. I mean, when they, they Novavax presented their data to our committee in mid-June, there were a number of cases of myocarditis, transient, short-lived, self-resolving myocarditis in healthy young males. So right. I, I think they're they're probably going to have the same problem in part because it looks like the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein does have molecular mimicry with the heavy chain of alpha myosin, and there may just be a non-specific uh, immunological effect. So I'm not Sure, any vaccine, any COVID vaccine, will be free of that because COVID causes myocarditis. So. Um, that wouldn't be a reason. I I do think though that I think that the person you're referring to in England, I think overstates the case. It is true that this vaccine can cause a short-lived transient myocarditis as as evidenced by the spillage into the bloodstream of heart muscle enzymes like troponin or creatine kinase. And this was a study done recently in Thailand and it's probably as high as one in 45 people, healthy young people, especially males. So we need to keep an eye on it. All that means is that, that the benefits have to be made clear before you ask anyone to get any vaccine. The benefits have to be clear, because the thing that upsets me the most is when people say to me, well, what's the downside? There's always a downside to any biological or therapy, and so you have to be humble about that.
1: Well, yeah, definitely no benefit without risk, for sure. Absolutely. And people do have to understand it. But I think we can undeniably say that if you've been adequately vaccinated, your risk of hospitalization, your risk of respiratory failure, and your risk of death is greatly decreased. We can undeniably say that. Well Absolutely. What we can't say is that getting vaccinated does anything about transmission.
0: No, nor would you expect it to. Again, it's a short incubation period disease, and so You're going to protect, I think, over the long term, I suspect, serious illness, but you're not going to be able to protect mild illness. I mean, I was fortunate enough to be part of a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that created the rotavirus vaccine, another short incubation period mucosal infection for a virus that doesn't really mutate. So our vaccine, which has been out since 2006, so it's been 16 years of this vaccine, and it's taken up very well by babies, and you know, it's about uh, 95% immunization rates, has basically eliminated the 75,000 hospitalizations, but that virus still circulates in the community, still causes mild disease in the community. There's no eliminating that. And I think we just have very early on had an unrealistic expectation for this vaccine. And I think it's our fault. I think back in December, 2020, when these data were presented to our committee, the Vaccine Advisory Committee, and you saw 95% protection against mild disease from Pfizer's vaccine, from Moderna's vaccine. Those were three-month studies. Those participants had just gotten their second dose. And when six months later, you found the protection against serious disease was holding up, protection against mild disease wasn't, we should have made it very clear that's exactly what you would have expected, but we didn't. We used words like breakthrough, waning immunity, and continued to inadvertently damn the vaccine.
1: Yeah, I think we can conclusively also say that politics and communication played a big role in a lot of people being upset all the time. So let me ask you now a little bit about the place for masking. What are your thoughts there? I certainly think for people
0: who are not going to develop a very good immune response because they're immunocompromised, because they're of a certain age, because they have the kind of comorbidities, meaning health, underlying health defects that make it so that they're just not going to make very good long-lived immune responses, I think they should mask when they're indoors in public. Uh, I think that's a good idea. This virus is going to be with us for years if not decades so we're going to be living with this for a while and and although you know we could say well i mean we don't do that for influenza or respiratory syncytial virus or other say winter respiratory viruses this virus is is pretty bad i mean this virus causes kinds of things that other respiratory viruses don't do that for example that so-called miss c that we see in children this multi-system inflammatory disease where a child has a really relatively trivial infection then a month later comes back with high fever you know lung involvement kidney involvement heart involvement liver involvement. I mean, no other respiratory virus does that. And and it can cause an ICU admissions and it causes about more than 70 children to die. I am an old person. I mean, I'm in my, I'm 71. I have been in the infectious disease world for a long time. I have never seen a virus do what this virus does.
1: Now, how about in the healthcare facilities? Do you feel like we should still be wearing masks in healthcare? Yes,
0: for, yeah, I do. I think that's a, just probably a good general idea anyway, especially over the winter um, as you walk in and out of rooms. And I certainly think in, in like long-term care facilities and nursing homes, I think that's a really good idea.
1: So high-risk people doing high-risk things keep wearing your mask. Yes. Pretty much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Now let's talk a little bit about kids and who should get the coronavirus vaccination. What are your thoughts there?
0: Right, so I think that's very timely because I think today the uh, Advisory Committee for Immunization Practice is considering adding the COVID vaccine to the uh, routine childhood schedule, which I think is a good idea. This has been unfortunately characterized by the media or carried in the media as that the CDC is about to require the COVID vaccine for all children. First of all, the CDC doesn't require anything. The CDC recommends vaccines. They're a recommending body. The FDA is a regulatory body. The CDC is a recommending body. Whether or not vaccines get mandated, get required, is really a state or local political decision. It's not a decision made by the CDC. So I think it's a good idea to add COVID to the routine schedule because every year, three and a half to four million children are born who are completely susceptible to this virus. This virus isn't going away anytime soon, so they should be protected because they can be hurt. I mean, more than a thousand, children have died from this virus uh, over the last two and a half years. So so although children are a thousand fold less likely to die than, say, someone over, over 65 or 70, nonetheless, they can die. And if you can prevent that safely, then prevent it. So I think that what's about to happen today at the CDC is a good thing. I hope the media carries it correctly.
1: Right. So that would be with an mRNA vaccine presently, because the protein subunit vaccine hasn't been approved for children. I think it's only been approved for 18 and over. That's right. right. Mm-hmm. as a primary vaccination first and as a secondary booster. Got it. So now, in terms of the kids, right now in Howard County, where I reside, nobody's wearing masks at school. And I think that seems to be appropriate, right?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when, when President Biden said, the pandemic's over, he was right to an extent, although he got hammered for that. It, people should have listened to his next sentence. His next sentence was, but we're not done with this virus. That, that, that was exactly right. I mean, if you define the term pandemic as it changes the way that you live, work, or play, it is over. I mean, we, we you know you go to a, a Sixers game. There's 20,000 people in an indoors setting, you know, in the late fall, and nobody's wearing a mask. Everybody's screaming their heads off. I think it's fair to say that, that this virus really isn't, for the most part, changing the way we live, work, or play. But it's not going away. And so the, I think the challenge moving forward is identify who the high risk groups are, protect them, because people will continue to suffer and be hospitalized and die from this virus. I mean, if you look at flu, for example, I mean. Two years before there was a, uh, this virus, SARS-CoV-2 came into this country in, say, January 2020, we had a flu epidemic that hospitalized 800,000 people and killed 60,000. We could have lessened those numbers if we massed and social distance and tested people to see whether they had flu. We don't do that. We've grandfathered that in. Those numbers essentially were okay with us. And I think we're going to get to that point with this virus, too. I don't know what those numbers are, but I think we're getting there.
1: That sounds great. That sounds really terrific. Well, We really covered a lot of information today, and it's been extremely informative, and it's been my sincere pleasure to have you as a guest, and thank you very much for your time, and maybe I'll see you at future University of Maryland alumni events, I hope, or maybe you'll join our director's board. I'll be the president next year, so I'll be looking for people to join, and I'm going to have you on my list. So this is uh, Harry Oken for the Columbia Association-sponsored podcast, Finding Your Wellness. Thanks for listening. You can tune into our podcast on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. That's dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Thank you very much.
0: Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.